Greg McMillan and this is 10 Strummer's Tales. In each episode, I'll be talking to a guitarist who has in some way influenced or inspired me. I'll be asking them about the bands they've been in, gigs they've played, albums they've recorded on, and just have some general chat about all things guitar. Episode 4, Ian Harvey. How are you, brother? Great, thanks. How's yourself? I'm okay. I'm okay. Brilliant. Thanks for doing this, Ian. I know you're a busy man at the moment. And, uh, yeah, well, not today particularly. Busy. <laughs> Probably about to do about a million of these interviews in the next few months, so sorry to add another one to your list. But <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Great, great. Are you happy we just crack on then? We'll just make a start. Yeah, right. What yeah. else would we do? Listening to you play guitars, I could do that. <laughs> Um, I don't know, it never really works over Zoom. I mean, it's not fun if you don't try and play with somebody, it's all right, I suppose. But, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just crack on then, really. Um, at this moment in time, you're, you're about to start rehearsing um, for the North American tour with Delamitri. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's the first time in like something like 25 years since you've been there. Well, I suppose it, well, it's the first time we've played over there, right? We've been over, but yeah. I was wondering if that's in line with the mantra of you can't go back, that you actually are going back to somewhere you've... you've well, had... I mean, that's kind of what the song's about. So, <laughs> yes, yes, it's quite... That's kind of a bit of self, self-awareness self in that, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and back, it was back in the 80s, I think, you, you did a sort of grassroots tour, didn't you? It was all sleeping in the van and sleeping on fans' couches. So I presume this time you're not sleeping on any couches, though? No, but it's not sort of... Aye, it has its own challenges. I mean, we sort of live on a bus for five weeks, essentially, if they always tell, which is, um, yeah. it's all right. Um, I imagine it's a bit like being in the circus or something, but um, I've never been in the circus, so maybe that is presumptuous, but um, <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite an interesting lifestyle, because um, you, you can just completely cut yourself off from the world, which might actually be quite therapeutic, given the shit that's going down at the moment I don't know but, uh, how, how do you find touring in general do you, do you enjoy it or is it that's good no I mean yeah I mean I, I'm always curious about people who say they don't like touring I mean I suppose this is something in, you don't focus on one thing just that sort of two hours of showtime during the day yeah. and that, that's a that's a kind of remarkably kind of privileged and focused way to work I mean, if you're doing those kind of US tours where it's all, there's so much travel during the day, you do become enormously, enormously focused on, on, on just on playing, which is, which is, I really enjoy. Is there much, is it all by bus you're doing or are you flying across? Any no, it's all bus. So it's a kind of, yeah, so we start in, start in Los Angeles and then up the West Coast and then across into Colorado and then up in the Midwest and then over to the East Coast, down the East Coast. And then back up to Cleveland, and then we fly out from Chicago. It's re- I mean, in a sense, it's easier to do it by road because you just travel at night. Um, sure. The logistics of trying to fly every day are just. And we've done promo tours like that. Um, it's brutal, you know, because you're you're going through two airports a day. And often you end up flying really early in the morning to sort of make a connection to get somewhere or something. I mean, it's good fun, you know, like, you would never, I mean, it'd be insane to do that kind of road trip in the States without 
being on tour with a theatre company or a band or whatever. But doing it is, is quite an experience. Um, it'd be nutty to go and drive a car those distances, but you, know, you get on the bus at night. The bus driver drives at night and he's going to stop for something to eat at three in the morning or something. So you end up in these amazing places at three o'clock in the morning every night, just sort of <laughs> surrounded by you know, mad truckers and what and what. I got very fond memories of being at Niagara Falls at five in the morning or something because that was the we were driving overnight from Toronto to wherever to Chicago. Yeah. Everybody piling off the bus at five in the morning to go and see Niagara Falls. It's just, you know, okay. Yeah. Are you, you going to be, so what do you, do you sleep on the bus or are you going to drive? I know you sleep on the bus. It's, you know, it's, one of, it's like a big sleep. I mean, if you can sleep on the bus, you sleep on the bus. What do you mean? You sleep on the bus. But have you got, you know, you're going to a hotel or are you just off the bus? No, the- I mean, well, it depends. I mean, generally, not every day. Um, so we're going to drive out of, so with, uh, I mean, a lot of the gigs are back to back. So you sort of drive out at two in the morning and arrive at midday and there might be a day room to shower in or whatever, but you're probably not going to sleep. You know, the sound is going to be at five. Um, so now you kind of live on a bus for like, three days and then you day off you'd be in the hotel right, right hope you get some sleep anyway on the bus <laughs> uh, come to the, things. The, the band have always done you know pretty well in America haven't they even from way back yeah. and just like wrote to me and stuff was a, a, a big hit over there so are you expecting a good you know good turnout and stuff and, and a, a good reception I mean it's sort of regional in the states um, unless you really do sort of break into the album charts, which you never really did, despite having a couple of sort of chart singles. So you're kind of, at that level, you're kind of dependent on which towns, because radio stations are regionally, there's no national radio stations. So, you know, like we're playing a big theatre in Chicago, but, you know, once we get to, you know, Western Pennsylvania, we're playing the wee club to a couple hundred people. So it's a kind of real mix of venues, which is, which is good. I mean, I, I like, you know, playing in those wee clubs is great fun. Um, it's sort of more of a challenge, I think, than yeah. you know, doing something on a big stage with, because you're, you're, you're much more, you're much more interactive with the audience. Um, so, I mean, it, it's a real mix of venues we're doing. I mean, everything, I mean, the smallest one's 200 capacity, you know, and they sold out quite early on, but um, the biggest one's probably two, two and a half thousand in Chicago. Right, right, yeah. So it's like right across the spectrum. Yeah, excellent, yeah, yeah. I mean, Delmetri are a, a totally great live band, you know, and not to detract from the albums in any way, but I know loads of people that have probably been dragged along to a Delmetri gig and then been absolutely converted after after seeing you live, you know. So is, do you think that's where the band are most comfortable or, or is it, you know, do you enjoy recording just the same as gigging or is, it, is gigging the thing? And we're always saying the recording really seriously. We only really sort of became the kind of live band that we are now or have been. I mean, we only really became the kind of live band you're describing after we'd made Waking Hours and and then realised we had to go and play on tour every night. You know, and at that point, when Waking Hours came out, it wasn't immediately successful. So it's been quite a long time going around the kind of big, you know, the kind of clubs in the UK 
I know it wasn't an easy process for us because we were a kind of terrible live band. I, mean, I think most bands are terrible live when they start out um, in some respects. I mean, and in fact, that's true, you were talking about the sort of grassroots to the States. I mean, that was a bit of an eye-opener for us that it was that it was kind of okay to be, it was okay to be, even if you're from Glasgow and you were beholden to Porn's Just and Joseph K, it was okay to be a kind of good rock band. That was a kind of real education for us in the States. And I suppose, you know, we came back to the States and I think it was a couple of years later that we started working on Waking Us, but it was like, there was a real kind of process there of realising what it meant to be um, an exciting live band. And I think in that kind of Glasgow post-punk when we started out, we were quite self-conscious about that. You know, just be like being a, being a sort of, you know, being a good rock band was sort of considered a bit naff in Glasgow somehow in the early 80s. Yeah. I don't know question. But I can't remember what the question was. But oh, no, that's so good, so good. I was going to say, you know, there was a, there was a period in the 90s where you, you just happened to play Barrowland. It was like every Christmas, about three or four nights in a row, and yeah. then it was just dynamite gigs. And I remember things like, things that stick in my mind was like Surface of the Moon and, you know, the bit with the kind of drum roll and the snare hits at the chorus and the your yeah. guys would always put these blinding white lights on in the audience in time with the, the drum hit. And it was just always great gigs. But, you know, you hear bands saying Barrowland is amazing. It always is as a punter, but can you say, is it great to play live or is it, you know? Well, it is, it is, it is. I mean, it's... Just it sounds great, the stage is so wide, you're close to the audience. It doesn't have that proscenium arts thing that you get in some big theatres of that size, which always kind of pushes the back. I don't mean there's a real divide between the band and the audience because you have to be behind the proscenium arts for the lights to work and stuff like that. So the barland's like a huge big club gig. Um, I mean, it sounds great. I mean, I think that's the reason it works. I mean, I used to love going there. Um, you know, because as a punter, it, it just it just really works. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it works on stage as well. You know, you can you can really get things happen on stage. You can get it sounding good on stage, and you and you really hear the audience, which is really brilliant. You feel really close to the audience. Yeah, no, it's an amazing venue. You do wonder, you know, you do wonder if it's just like these bands just say, "Oh, Barland, you've been amazing." No, it's- no, it is. I mean, there are these places, these rooms that work. King Tots kind of works. I think King Tots is a really good room. Played there a few times, and I've worked there with other bands. And you know, if the King Tuts is full, that's a great room. Mm. And we're going to see the replacements there. Um, one of the best guys I've been at. I mean, there's other rooms that work. The Barlands is, is, is particularly special. You know, there's a great, like Hammersmith Odeon's a great room, and, that, and that's a big, huge kind of flash place with a you know, and it's got the Pisanium Arts and the whole thing, but it, it kind of works a different way for the Barlands. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's strange. But, you know, and people design rooms and they want them to work and they don't work. I mean, the SEC was never designed to be a music venue. It's a terrible place to play and it's a terrible place, or it was a terrible place to see bands. I don't think anybody plays there anymore. I was always sad that we never got to play at the Apollo, though. I always wanted to... That would have been a... You know, because that was the first big venue that I ever went to. And Barlands, you know, but Apollo seemed like... I don't know how much bigger it is in the Barlands, but it felt enormous to me when I was 16. You know, I mean, I went to see bands in the Barlands, it seemed impossible that we'd ever play there. <laughs> and it sort of seemed more impossible, if that's not a stupid qualifier, that we would ever play at the Apollo. But we probably would have played at the Apollo, except they pulled the damn place down and built like, a cinema. Around. I've never been in the Apollo, but I know it is, you know, just totally 
up there in terms of you know there's a whole Facebook uh, sort of yeah and they're totally recreating that digitally and all that to show you what it was like and well I think it had the same kind of um, it had the same kind of legendary status as the Barlands has now I think you know people talked about just being the most amazing gigs there and you know Neil Young I remember complaining he came back it was really funny the SECC it's like um, you know and Neil Young well was one of my heroes still to some extent, but but he was he commented on the that he was like, well, why did you pull down the Apollo? That was such a great room. At a ridiculously high stage, though, did it not? You wouldn't want to fall off. Of I they put the high stage in seemingly because there was a stage invasion at some ah. dance gig or something, so they raised ah. the stage up. Right. Uh, the stage was ludicrous, like because you, uh, you couldn't, you know, you, you, you could just about reach it, um, but it was the stuff people went on to it. In the council put in the high stage, but actually that kind of if you're in the circle it it, it was amazing you know you're just this band up on the mm. on this big mad high stage and that was great yeah, excellent actually it's, Tiffany's was a really good room as well did you ever go there Tiffany's ballroom no 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 it's now it's a casino now it's at the far end Jerry Cross end of um, Sucky Hall Street ah right, right. amazing gigs a new order played there like on the bunny men you two are not one of my favourite bands. Um, you know, right at the start when Boy was out, saw some groups from the series, you know. But the bar, I mean, the great thing in the Barlands is it survived. You know, it's been going for, when did they start putting on concerts there? It was, I was talking to some regular music. I think it was sort of in the 80s, maybe. They were looking for somewhere, regular music, were looking for somewhere. Right, right. And they spoke to the MacGyvers. And they went in there and I didn't have the stage at that point. You know, it's a funny wee stage, which isn't there anymore at the other end, but it's just to put the, the soundboard. Yeah. Yeah. I think they took that out. Oh, right. And regular <coughs> installed that big scaffolding stage, huge big white stage. Um, and it's been there ever since. Yeah. And in fact, the last time we were up there, I was talking to, I can't remember his first name, Mr. McGarry, who's kind of runs the place, one of the sort of, it's been in the family for since it was built, I suppose. Yeah. Um, he was saying for years that um, <clears throat> the venue supported the market. You know, that was kind of ah, right. part of the business. Uh, you know, and the whole the, the COVID thing had been a real problem for them financially because they weren't doing shows there. But I mean, it's, it's survived that. I mean, it's uh, thriving again. Yeah, and you're going back to play there this year as well, aren't you? Uh, we were supposed to. The show was supposed to do in December. There's supposed to be Christmas shows again this year. Um, but they all got sort of scratched because of the, the Omicron wave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, I mean, just a couple of days before we were going to do them, which is a real shame. Um, just moving on to your rig. So for this tour, what's your kind of setup are you taking? Um, what I've used for years, I mean, just an orange... Well, and a, an old orange head with the six cell or the L thirty fours in it, and a couple of two by twelves with the speaker soaked down because those things will just deafen up, deafen you if you stand in front of them. Um, and then I just get a smaller amp beside that. Um, there's a couple of wee Gibson amps that I use that are the kind of I don't know they sort of complement that big orange thing, and they kind of make it easier to get a smaller amps are easier to they kind of. They give you a richer feedback in the big kind of green and um, sort of yellow 34. 
loaded head. But I've used that for years. And are you running both together or do you switch between yeah, them? Yeah, it's both together. Yeah. Right, okay. I noticed you, you're a big orange fan. And typically in rehearsal rooms and all that, and if, if you went to other gigs, the back line's always martial. What what drew you to orange? What was, what made you go for that? Well, I, the martial gear that was around when in the 80s, there was a lot of really horrible sort of metal sounding martial heads that I could never, I could never make a head or tail of. And actually at that point, and actually even when we started touring, I used to use these old way maps that I'd picked up. Yeah, yeah. Small things, I used to use three of them, just like one by twelves, but they were so unreliable. They just wouldn't stand up to being on the road. And, you know, I remember as a tech looked at one of these going, you really shouldn't be using these, they're not that safe, you know, because they would just really fall out of them. Um, <laughs> And I was kind of very, I should probably get something, you get something else, what they do, you know, that kind of, I mean, you could, there were sort of okay marshals, but you had to spend a lot of money and find a sort of an old blues breaker or something if you didn't want that kind of horrible, kind of fussed up marshal head at that point. It wasn't that easy to get good sounding ones. And there was loads of people who were, there was, you know, the back page of the Evening Times, even in the, in the late 80s and even in the early 90s, there was loads of people selling like orange amps and things like that just because they, they were heavy and they wanted that PV transistor amp that they could put in their cars. Loads of guys in club bands had them. Sure. So I picked, I picked loads of orange gear up just for hardly any money at that point. And I spent a bit of money getting some of it fixed. Some of it had sort of funny mods done to it or just been badly maintained. But they're quite simple things. So if you get a sort of conscientious take, they'll they can put it back the way it was. And uh that's so that that was why I ended up with those bomb jumps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Most of them were bought out of the back pages of the evening times or the snips in the evening times. Right. <laughs> Brilliant. In terms of like um guitars and, and pedals, etc so what will you be taking out? Well no I've got I've just got a couple of Les Pauls, Les Paul Deluxes that I use and there's a couple of Yamaha SG three thousands. That's really all I take out. Electric guitar wise, yeah. Um, pedals. I mean, an MXR microamp and an MXR compressor, and a couple of distortion pedals, and a Moog delay pedal. That's that's about it. Right, when they go into too much of the <coughs> pedals. There's quite a lot of tracks you play slide on. Um, do you? Uh, Certain guitars are set up with higher action for that, and are they in altered it? Yeah, I mean, it's usually one of the Yamahas has got a higher action. Um, yeah. I tend to just use a standard tuning for slide right. on stage. Okay. So maybe, with, maybe with a dropped D, but um, Jimmy Blue is different on the acoustic, but um, electric slide, I always just use a very good tuning. Right, okay. Just to somebody gives me an electric guitar with different tunings, I don't know. I <laughs> yeah. just about cope with the D being dropped. I don't even like playing with capos, I get a bit. I don't know, just that sort of um, disorientated. Ear to, you know, the kind of ear to hand thing goes a bit awry for me when there's a capo and you're playing open string and it's not the right note. Oh, I've really got, to, I've really got to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And you play, you play pedal steel as well, don't you? Yeah, I've had both. Yeah, just Yeah, yeah. And then I've I've seen you on stage with the this uh, is that a flat neck acoustic? You just turn round and you're standing up. Oh yeah, dobro. I mean, that's we used the dobro on. Be my downfall and a couple of things on the earlier records. 
Yes, it's just, I mean, that's the classic sort of square neck Dobro with a higher action. Um, yeah. You know, the action's like a pedal, but it's not as big as a pedal steel, but you can't possibly hold the strings down. Um, Sure. Yeah, excellent. And acoustics as well. What, what are you playing there? Um, that's just a couple of Taylor acoustics that we picked up years ago in the States. There's big the ones that look like the big Gibson G three hundreds or whatever they are, that sort of shape thing. Um which are great on stage. Um and actually good in the studio as well. Justin's got a couple, Justin's got a Gibson, one of those kind of ones that John Lennon used to play with that. Pick up, isn't it? Pick up it anymore. They're a bit sort of honky, they're a bit more character. Um, they're a bit of a pestage on stage. Um, I've never really, I mean, I've always sort of lusted after the the dream acoustic, the sort of Martin Dreadnought or a Guild, whatever the Guild one is, kind of the number. Um, but you got to find the right guitar. And they're, you know, and they and they're really expensive good acoustic. Or they can be really expensive. I mean, you get good acoustics for not so much money, but I've never really sort of found myself moved to spend the mm-hmm. thousands of pounds on the the Fabi Gill. You know, I mean, we rented them. I mean, we did a couple of sessions in, in Los Angeles on the first album, and the producer rented a few acoustic guitars. You know, the guy came in like four. Old guitars and chose one. You know, they, they, they were all amazing. You know, oh, that's, that, I can see why people spend money on these things. But we've always got by. I mean, the Taylors are great guitars. I mean, they don't quite have the the, um, the kudos of the Gilder or Martin, but well, I mean, the modern ones do. I think. Um, die. So we've just they they they've they've, they've been great. Used us for years. I mean, would you say? You know, would you class yourselves a bit of a gearhead? Are you, are you constantly drooling over new bits of gear? No, no, really. I mean, when we, it was that period when we started touring where, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I mean, most of the equipment was bought then, um, sort of in the early, the early, early 90s, the 80s, early 90s. Um, now, I'm not one of those guys that's constantly buying another guitar or yeah. want to sort of, you know, sort of, Get fancy new pedals. Yep, yep. No, I, I mean that's never really been my thing. So why else is a bought guitar actually? Um, I was, I was wondering, you know, it, you know, I don't know if you remember with Dave Gilmer fairly recently auctioned off a ton of his guitars and stuff, and uh, I remember feeling really disappointed in him because he said in interviews that um, other they're just tools, and I was like, I was kind of gutted by that because you know I think a guitars much more than that I mean it, it leaves its mark on you and you leave your mark on it and it's or maybe yeah. I don't get too much of an emotional attachment but do, do you see them as just tools or, or do you know do you do you remember when I wrote this song on this one or I played this gig with that one and it was great or you're going to I, mean, say- <laughs> I mean I've got you know a couple of the last poles that I've got I've had serious head stop breaks and they've had to be repaired you know and you, you get them repaired and so in that sense you've got to be not too sentimental about it and you just go okay it's a tool you know and there's a spare so if you know guitars have been stolen off carousels at airports and you know that stuff just happens wow. so you got to be you got to sort of suppress the being too sort of close to them but <laughs> by the same token yeah I mean the guitars that I've got are I've used for years, so I mean they are very, um, they're very personal to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if the, the five guitars are going on the road, of the same five guitars going out on the road, it was a bit of chopping and changing when we started touring, but I mean, basically for the last 25 years. And I haven't really bought anything since then. Your juice, juice. Yeah, but the last guitar I bought was one of those Martin things, the East Coast Field things. Yeah. Carry it around. So, uh, I could just stick it, get, so I could stick it in the bike. Um, I was doing a couple of things where I was, um, I needed a guitar, but not, I mean, not necessarily to perform to an audience with. Um, I don't have a car, I've owned a car in my life. So I was like, that's that case. You know, and I was like, mm, I can be bored taking an acoustic on a backpack on a bike. And that's, that's a bit dangerous. And I was like, that's, I went in the music, music shop down in Oxford when I was staying at the time. Um, and I was like, oh, let me try one of these three quarter scale things. And that's great. I was like, I'll just give it that. I'll do it. You know, you can stick yeah. it up in and off you go. <laughs> that was the last guitar I wrote. Right, right. Did, did, did I remember, did, did you used to have a, a, I think it was maybe a Yamaha guitar, but it was a Tartan. That wasn't a Yamaha guitar. Oh, yeah, we did a tour with that one. Um, it was a, what guitar was it? I think it was a Gordon Smith. Ah, could have been, yeah. It was a double cutaway thing. I still got it. I, that was when we were first doing big tours of the States. <laughs> um, I've considered resurrecting a couple of times. It ended up in a, that, it ended up in a, a show at the National Gallery. And that, um, right. It was a Rip It Up, I can't remember what it was called. The History of Scottish Music. Right. Um, I was thinking, oh, maybe we should take that out again. So, I mean, for the record, that was a Gordon Smith that Jimmy Moon painted the, a Wallace tartan onto him. My middle name was Wallace. I saw it was just um, about to ask, was it Jimmy Moon that did it? And it was. It was Jimmy that did it, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I went all over the world that guitar. I mean, there's a lot of pictures of me playing it in the States on a couple of tours. Especially down in Australia. Um, not sure why I did it. Why did I get retired? I got quite into having a big speed. There's one of the Les Pauls got a big speed on it, and I got quite into using that on stage. Right, yeah. So I suppose maybe that's why it, it kind of drifted, <laughs> drifted back into the bedroom. <laughs> Just um, jump, jumping back to fatal mistakes. How do you decide how much of the new album you're going to include in the set, and how much of your other albums is you going to play the whole fatal mistakes or just? No, well, we did quite a lot of it on tour. Um, how did we work that out? I mean, there's a kind of expectation from the audience that they want to hear songs that they know. So in a sense, it was more figuring out. How much of the back catalogue could you get away with not doing? Does that make sense? I don't mean that in a kind of um, it's a down kind of way, in a negative kind of way, but it was like, okay, so how much, how much of the set can we get away with? And I see more songs were creeping in as we were touring. You know, we started doing Nation of Canos, and oh, there was a couple of things otherwise we started doing. So we're sort of doing more and more of that as it, as the tour goes on. Because you know, the audience get are more familiar with it. And depends where you're playing as well. I don't know, something in a big theatre. As a kid, it feels a bit of an expectation that you're going to do a more kind of measured set. But if you're in a wee club, I think you can get away with. And you know, in the states, actually, we'll probably do a lot more of it in the clubs, just because I don't know. It seems easier to do new material there. It seems easier to connect with people. It's a great album. It's it's a real what I would say it's a real Delamitri signature sound. Like songs like uh, "You Can't Go Back" and its feelings are 
unmistakably Delamitri, and I mean that in a really positive way. But what beats me is how you you can do songs that are sub three minutes. I just writing a three. But yeah, that album it was interesting because that's kind of the first album we've done that. I mean, there's been lots of sub three minute songs, but somebody did a couple people said just like why are all the songs so short? And it's not one that's eight minutes long, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. We were kind of we haven't been touring that. Well, we hadn't been touring obviously for a while. Um, but we'd done a tour in 2018 before we recorded that. And there was a kind of feeling that I don't know the way they didn't really get that into doing big guitar solos or extending things. It felt quite felt quite natural keeping it short. And also we were conscious of it was gonna go on vinyl and we didn't really want the vinyl to be different from the the other releases. Uh-huh. So you know, there's a strict limit to what you can put on the vinyl. So if the songs had been longer, there'd have been one or two songs less on it. So there was a kind of there was quite a lot of factors at play that kind of led to that. Yeah. And something quite I think there's something quite cool about it. It's a, a no mean feat. I mean, I think uh, one of them's two minutes thirty four. I think that's uh, lose uh, to die. It's like two minutes thirty four. Brilliant. And then, as you said, going to the other extreme, uh, Nation of Caners is seven minutes forty or something like that. So that's almost prog rock. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only got two chords. So there's nothing. Yeah, prog rock with two chords. <laughs> I, I thought you know this must be the longest elementary song you've got. And then I looked and there's not. There's another one. Um, I'm about to have the knowledge of this. Um, what would be longer than that? There's a track on a CD that's got a hidden thing at the end of it. The, look, if, you've got, if you get it on a database, it might say the track's 12 minutes long or something. But I don't think the song's 12 minutes long. I think it was on the, um, the previous album that it was seven minutes. Four. Well, there might be something. Hang on, there's a couple. There's a long There's all things that can you do me good. Um, yeah, that's it, I think, yeah. But it might also have... There are a couple of long things in it, but I don't think any of it's long as eight minutes, but there is a track which has got a hidden bit at the end. Uh, the last track on the CD um, has got a hidden... If you let it run in your car you don't turn the CD off, there's a thing that's... I think that track might read on the you know, Spotify or whatever it's being. Uh, okay. 12 minutes, but I don't think it's 12 minutes of music. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> but I'll check that out, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Because it used to be that thing you could hide things in the the runoff grooves on records, you know, yeah. on a final record, or you could put a loop at the end or whatever, um, and people come up with, or there was other ways, there was ways to do things with CDs as well. So CDs were 80 minutes long, but you might not have 80 minutes of music on it. So you could hide things in the, uh, the empty bit, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So there is something hidden in the empty bit of that record, so that yeah. might be <laughs> um, but Nation of Caners, what a great song! I think it sounds a bit like you know it starts off, it just builds and builds all the way through and ends up sounding like something from Sergeant Pepper's. I think the way it goes towards the end is ah okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It all collapses at the end. Yeah, yeah. And I broke a string. I was playing this um, ridiculous baritone guitar, which is sort of halfway between a bass and a and a, and a guitar, so that the fifth or a fourth down depends on you tune it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I broke a string towards the end of it, um, which is why, which made a, quite a colossal noise. But uh, I just totally wait for it at that point. Um, yeah. So that was, I mean, the backing track to that was done sort of, <clears throat> there was a lot of takes, but it was a single take. We spent an evening just kind of going through it. And that was maybe the 20th or the 30th 
30th take, um, but it was one take from start to finish. Wow. Is, is that going to be done live? Yeah, we've been doing it live, actually. Yeah. Uh, um, the hardest thing, you know, it's really got two chords, so it can't be that hard to play, except it's completely irregular. Like, there's no, there's no kind of, um, so it's a bit like, um, Subterrain Homesick Blues or something, that the chord changes just follow the lyrics in a totally um, sort of capricious way. So you've got to know the lyrics to play it. Um, and it everybody has to know the lyrics. And if Justin made a mistake, the lyrics have to go completely all over the place. So it took us a while to actually... I mean, towards the end of the last tour, we got to, we did it a couple of nights. And we we're, were doing the States. I think we finally got it under a belt. It wasn't an easy song to play because, like I say, everybody had to know you have to you have to know it you have to know the lyrics so you obviously you share guitar duties with Chris and sometimes ah. you know Justin's occasionally playing acoustic as well so how how do you divvy up who's going to do what or does that just happen naturally when you're pulling, pulling well a- I mean it might depend it kind of depends if Justin's playing acoustic then it's probably a song he's written on the acoustic guitar sure although there's a couple of things that I ended up playing the bass on because he wasn't comfortable playing the bass I mean sometimes because I played the bass in the studio and Justin's not, it's not, there's only really a couple of songs that we're doing that with at the moment. So it's just kind of, kind of organic, you know, or it's a song Justin's written an acoustic guitar and somebody's picked up the bass and in the rehearsal room and that's just how it's worked out. Um, between me and Chris, I mean, with the newer songs, it's the stuff of Fail Mistakes and he did the stuff of Can You Do Me Good. That came from how the songs are put together in the rehearsal room. The earlier things we just kind of figured out who's best playing what bit. Just regarding the acoustic sort of stuff, um, you know, it's, the song "It's Feelings" has got really nice acoustic playing, and it's almost like it's, it's almost like an electric guitar part, but played on an acoustic. And I, I think you do that in quite a few Delamitri songs. Is that something you really think about, or is it just something that just happens? Or to me, it's not just strumming. You know, it's not just chords. It's actual parts that seem to. Remind me of an electric guitar part, but they, they just work out great on the acoustic. I really like writing on acoustic guitars, um, but I wouldn't generally wouldn't write a song on an acoustic guitar starting with chords, if you see what I mean. I mean, I would be looking for um, a melodic idea. Yeah. So maybe that's the reason for that. Yeah. Um, I've never really thought about that. Hmm. Um, or it's not from that perspective. I mean, we did start to fiddle around actually with playing it on an electric because it's quite, I always find playing acoustic, and as much as I love writing on acoustic guitars, that's just but they're a wee bit problematic live. You sort of lose a lot of the dynamics live. Um, so it can be, it can be I, I, sometimes I can find them a bit frustrating to play on stage. Um, just because you don't have all those really subtle dynamics that you get, yeah, yeah, when you're playing them in a, when you're in a room with an acoustic guitar, um, and I mean it's sort of easy. To, in some ways, it's easier to write with an acoustic guitar because you just pick it up and play it. Um, if it's an electric guitar, I mean I'll pick it up and play it, but I'll often usually if I'm sort of writing an electric guitar, I think well, I'm plugging it in, so then I'm going like, all right, how am I going to? Deal with it. I mean, I just end up videoing loads of things on, a, on an iPhone, but you know, then I've got there's another for me anyway. I would be going 
sort of further down the line, I figured out how I was going to, you know, how am I going to record it? Am I going to plug in a wee guitar amp in the house and drive the neighbours mad? Or am I going to, you know, I don't know, fart around with some amps sitting on a computer, which always just does a total vibe killer for me. Um, so maybe that's kind of the reason for it. Yeah. So I mean, that's the tendency. If I'm going to write an electric guitar, I tend to just use it acoustically anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that would be wrong to me as well. It's, you know, I'd be interested to hear it on an electric guitar. It's just that, to me, it's not something, it's typical of an acoustic guitar part, but it really works on it. That's what I'm getting at, I guess, you know. And I noticed that in this album as well. Yeah, yeah maybe because I don't bother if I'm writing, I'm generally not writing with a guitar plugged into an amp. Yeah. Then there's not so much of a, there's not so much of a conceptual difference to what I might play an electric guitar and why I play an acoustic guitar because I'm just playing it acoustically anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And the song Lonely has got some cracking acoustic guitar bits as well. And the, I think, you know, there's not that, I, I was going to say there's not that many. I think there's only one solo on the whole album and it's, and it's acoustic guitar solo on Lonely as well. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, it was kind of crying out for a solo, that song. It just structurally really needed it. You know, it's just got that, um, it's quite an abstract chord sequence. It's kind of, it's kind of and it done, you know, inspired by it's just it's kind of an A and a B section, but it's not really, it's not so strophic in the sense that it builds from verse to verse. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was kind of obvious that that was going to have a guitar solo. I mean, so that, that, that was actually recorded. It was just a guide vocal. I mean, that sit in one night and go, right, what's the solo going to be? Um, and I kind of sat and sort of waited for the the, the, the gods of the guitar solo to, to play something for me. Is, is that going to be, you know, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes it's hard live or acoustic. Are you going to be doing that live? No, we've been doing that. I mean, we, we played that in the last round. It was good. And it took a wee while to to feel our way into it. But we did, we, we, we persevered with that from the start of the tour. You know, just that thing of like not pushing it too hard, trying to keep the dynamics there. You know, there's a tendency with that kind of acoustic thing if it's if it's not feeling right, or certainly I've got a tendency if something's not feeling right to start speeding it up and that song really suffers from that. So we had to really think about that and just get all those things in place. Um, and you know, no matter how much time you spend in a rehearsal room when you when you go on stage, you have to just rethink and remind yourself of these things and. You know, you listen to recording the previous time, you're like, oh my God, did I really speed up that much? Or, you know, it's like, that, that's why I, that's why I fumbled the blooming soul because it was actually going up about 10 BPM as soon as it started, you know, because things like that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. You, when, you're doing, when you're doing tracks like that and you've got a solo acoustically live, are you just relying on the sound guys to give you the boost you need or do you flick on like a compressor pedal or something just to give you a wee bit extra help or...? Um, so on stage, actually, I generally put the acoustics through an amp, which might not be mic'd up. Um, it just gives it a bit of, it, it gives you a wee bit of that dynamic on the stage, you know, because then it's not just through the PA in your ears and maybe a bit in the monitors. So if you've got an amp, it just gives it a bit of, I don't know, there's a bit of, a bit of push and pull you get from having it coming out of an amp on stage as well. So yeah. um, It might not be that loud. Um, so there's an, I've got an old, actually an old Marshall um, old keyboard amp, but it's very similar to the, the sort of those classic blues breaker things. And through a, a compressor to the amp, 
not sure much of that ends up front of house. Mm. But I couldn't rely on that on stage. Because they'll just through the monitors or just through in ears, they can sound that they're really undynamic mm. acoustics. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you that. Do you do you use any ear monitors on stage? Yeah. 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 I mean they make a huge difference. We've used them for a while. We used to just use them as a kind of to just to reinforce the vocals. And with wedges, but I said the last year I wasn't using wedges at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, but you can still get the PA in the room. Um, I, I, I say interesting. I say we go in the states because if you're in smaller venues and in little clubs, they can be a bit, they can be a wee bit disorienting because you can't actually hear the audience. Um, you know, you can always you can hear the audience in a big hall, but it can be a bit weird because somebody can say something to you from ten, you know, from five feet away in front of the stage. And you can't hear them, um, so I don't know. I haven't done that for a while. Yeah, I think definitely if you're doing any vocals, it's, it must make a hell of a difference because you're just getting it right here rather than trying to hear yourself coming out of box you know, a couple of feet. But the other thing that they're really brilliant for is that you can you can hear, and in a sense, this is even more because you can get some of the boxes that are on stages, the monitor boxes on stages now are phenomenal. They sound amazing, um, so you definitely hear your vocals at the mic. But it means that you can hear what's coming out of your amps anywhere on the stage you know you walk to the other side of the stage you still hear it it's that you know and there's something quite funny there's something funny but there was something quite um, visceral about you know before the people were using in ears you know if you walked if I walked to you walked to the other side of the stage or stood in front of the drum kit you couldn't hear what you were playing you know which is kind of um, when you hear a bit about the PA maybe depends the size of the venue but um you know, so that's a kind of um, that's a real advantage. <laughs> no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And do you have a wireless system as well, so you can walk about, or do you still use cables? Uh, it depends on the venues. I mean, we won't use wireless in the clubs in the states, but yeah, on big stages, yeah, it just gets too complicated. Um, <laughs> and could be on a big stage, you can end up on a right old fine call. That's a no- <laughs> Leads in the middle of the stage, maybe a few times, maybe if they start unplugging guitars and untangling them. I mean, there's a few guitarists say that they can hear the difference. You know, they, they won't go to wireless because they can hear the difference between a, a cable and the wireless bath. There is a difference, but you can sort of, I mean, it's getting, all this equipment's got so much better in the last sort of 10 years, five years. Um, so you get some high end radio stuff and you can pretty much match it to what it would be. The video for You Can't Go Back looked uh, fun, and again, again, I thought it was a bit of an ode to Roll To Me. It was a complete parody of Roll To Me. I mean, you know, the tape recorder at the start, it was a sort of, you know, in, in more ways than one, you know, because the A&M record spent a fortune making that Roll To Me video, and the, you know, the, the one for You Can't Go Back, you know, it's just, <laughs> I, it's just kind of guerrilla video making in the streets of Glasgow. So, I mean, yes, it was a it was a direct parody of the Roll To Me video. And talking of videos, there's also, I, I don't know, more than a video, a sort of film that came out around the same time as the album. Ah. It's also called You Can't Can't Go Back, and it was on Sky Arts. I haven't actually seen it yet because I don't have Sky, but I've ordered the, the Blu-ray of it. But oh, okay. How did you feel um, that? So, I mean, a filmmaker who approached us independently, and was interested in making a documentary kind of about... Well, it had a slightly different uh, treatment 
many for many pictures was got sort of screwed up by the COVID thing. So like it doesn't matter there's your two more. So it ended up being yeah, kind of a documentary about it's making the record and a sort of a, a kind of historical thing. So it was good fun. Um, so there's those footage I was in the studio and I was kind of going around Glasgow talking about places from the past and um, there's some quite good interviews with well I mean I, I to be honest, I find it quite hard. It's really hard. I find it really hard to watch myself talking to camera. It's quite an odd thing. I don't mean listening to myself on radio interviews, but watching yourself talk to camera in that kind of verity, sort of documentary filmmaking kind of way, actually, I find it really disconcerting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there's, I mean, there's, 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 there's yeah, there's a quick, quick. There's a good interview with me and my sister talking about being in on the original tour of the states. Ah, right, yeah, yeah. And the original concept was that it was going to be sort of parallel interviews with people who followed the band for sort of twenty years. So the film he was going to go off, and there was a couple of people in the states he's going to interview, and a woman in Italy, but he couldn't. Done none of that could happen because of the the, the travel restrictions. And so they ended up being slightly recast as a kind of more. Straightforward documentary about the making of the record. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I've seen a few clips, but um, it looks looks great. Yeah, I, I was going to compare um, this album to you know the the last Delamitri album was 2002. Can you do me good? Right. It, which I thought was quite a sonically different album for Delamitri. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, it quite you know some things like samples involved, and even your guitar sounded a bit more sort of tremolo effects and. and you know, a huge sound like drunk in a band had this huge guitar sound, just absolutely massive, heavy guitar sound. Um, Fatal Mistakes didn't didn't continue in that vein. It was more, I guess, stripped than that. I mean, we did. We, we had made it at that point. We'd kind of ended up in a curious position with the the record company, the record contract that we were working with. So A Name Records who we'd worked with for all the other albums. After some other circus parade, the, there was a huge sort of sequence of corporate buyouts and A&M just disappeared into sort of polygrams. So we were, we ended up on Mercury Records with a different A&R guy. And we were kind of in quite an odd position because they weren't that bothered about us being on the labels. There was a definite kind of notion that they wanted us to do something different. And we were, at that point, we were quite interested in working with different kind of producers. So we ended up working with this producer called um, Gordon Williams, and credits himself as Commissioner Gordon on <laughs> the albums that he worked on. He'd worked on KRS-One, and he'd worked on um, a whole load of that kind of New Jersey um, sort of R&B scene that was going on at the time, Lawn Hill and oh, yeah. Yeah. all that kind of stuff. So we he ended up producing it, which is kind of... Well, actually, we recorded a lot of it ourselves, and then we did some recording with him over in Teaneck at his place in Teaneck. So we were conscious that we were working in a slightly different. We were approaching the record making in a slightly different way, which was great actually. It took a long time. I mean, because Mercury weren't, we were given a lot of time to to, to make that record without much A and R guidance. So we kind of kind of went in his own direction. Which is great. I mean, I really like that record. I think it's a really great record. And if it, I mean, and then the, the record contracts with Mercury kind of fizzled out pretty soon after that record was released. They didn't promote it. They didn't, I mean, it was kind of a 
kind of a strange enterprise. Right, okay, yeah. I mean, there's no reason why we couldn't have sort of continued in that, that vein at that point. But making fatal mistakes, we were definitely conscious that we were going to go back to make something more akin to waking hours or more akin to... We weren't going to go experimental at this point. Yeah. Maybe we'll on the next record. No, probably not. We might. I don't know. There's always stuff working in the background. But you, you mean, you've also got to... When you've made records for as long as we have, there's a kind of... You've got to respect the audience as well. Yeah. I think that's something... You know, without being sort of cynical or commercial, I mean, I think we wanted to go and make and it's, you know, something much more. And in fact, Justin, we did, after Can You Do Me Good, Justin and I did spend a fair while working on our own and we did do some some much more experimental stuff. And I was a kind of, we sat around with a manager and he was like, I don't think you should release this as a delimitary record. It's, you know, and that's the thing, you know, it's, it's a different kind of project. Mm. Right. Um, so I think if we did go back to working in a sort of not just sort of two guitars, bass, drums, and keyboards kind of world, we'd maybe think about doing it as a side project rather than telling you albums. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like famously, your albums have like, I think it was something that happened to your first album, isn't it? When you went to master it, the guy was putting reverb on it and you were like... Well, that was more to do with the guy because the guy had mixed it. This guy, Julian Manuels, that had mixed it and he mixed it and he was down in Sam West in that kind of um, stock and Waterman world. You know, all those pop records were being made there. Um, and he's, he's, I think he did mixes for stock and Waterman. So I think the guy in the mastering suite was just like, oh, Julian's had a bad day. This, is, this doesn't sound like, you know, it's stalking, I'm going to like this, but we had to follow up, I'm like, no, no, don't do that. <laughs> in fact, I was totally amazed that you could do, that anybody you could consider doing that at the mastering stage, but yeah. <laughs> but you, 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 you've kind of stuck with that sort of rule, haven't you? That like the albums are very, I think you go for the in-the-room sound rather than overly processed or, you know, adding much effects on it. It's quite a band, live band sound, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that, and that was a sort of creative decision we made very much at the start. You know, in the 80s, there was a lot of quite, I mean, maybe quite good records in terms of the, the songs in the band that kind of sounded awful. You know, they were the big snare drums and everyone was really brittle and everyone was sort of, um, and, a, and a lot of those records really hadn't dated. Um, so we were very conscious that we didn't want to do that, that we wanted to make something that was a sort of, contemporary record but it wasn't making those mistakes because they didn't seem to us to be mistakes at the time um, I mean if you listen to sort of there was a Bruce Springsteen record from around that time and it sounded horrible you know and Bruce Springsteen's made some amazing sounding records you know and he, he, not soon after, I mean not long after that it was the ghost of Tom Joad and it was the Nebraska you know they, they, those records came out yep, yep. in the early 90s but some of the stuff he did in the late 80s does suffer from that kind of horrid production that was around at the time. So we were very consciously wanted to make a record that sounded like, or that had the, <clears throat> had the kind of recording philosophy of maybe even like early Faces records or... Yeah. Um, so there were records we made in the States at the time that were much more... Um, had that kind of recording philosophy 
and it was like country records, like Steve L albums, and maybe even it was a John Cougar Mellencamp album. And he's not an artist that I was sort of quote as an influence with. That lonesome Jubilee record that he put out. Then Lyle Lovett was putting out records. There was there was a there was another kind of area of music that wasn't that was kind of very deliberately avoiding that eighties production thing, and we wanted to do the same thing. I wanted to ask you about TV appearances. Uh-huh. I think you know you've probably done a hell of a lot of the years, and some of them you probably think were a bad experience, not from the band's point mm-hmm. of playing, but just the whole experience. But there was two in particular I wanted to ask what you thought mm-hmm. of that I always think look great. Uh, one being Very good. <laughs> one being the Jules Holland show and one being the Letterman show. What was your experiences of playing both of them? I uh, Jules Holland show. The Jules Holland show is great because it's like a concert. You know, there's an audience around and you, you, you do a sound check in the afternoon and there's a proper PA there. And so, yeah, I mean, that's like a proper vibey, vibey thing. I, I mean, I, I don't remember about it. I remember stereophonics were on it. But it, it was good fun doing that. It feels like a proper, a proper kind of gig. The Letterman show, I mean, it is, it's vibey doing those big sort of networked TV shows. Because they're not, well, they look like they're live to air. They're not live to air, but they, but they are live, live. I mean, they, they record them in the afternoon, and then or they call them a couple of hours before, right? As if they're live to air, and then they then they broadcast it, um, which I think is a restriction from the, the licensing over there. So that if you because I think if you see you're on American network television, you end up. But they 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 they're great fun. Not least because, I don't know, did you ever watch the Larry Sanders show? Did you ever watch that programme? There was an HBO thing, which was a sort of, um, a sort of comedy. It was like a spoof. It was a kind of very dry comedy. Yeah, a comedy programme that was directly the Letterman show. Right, right. And that was, it was so accurate. It was just so evil. Because we did the Letterman show a couple of times. And we did the Conan Ryan show once as well. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, it's quite a like it's quite a buzz because it's so preposterous, you know. It's just, uh, and you know, because they record it, you can then go and watch yourself in a bar somewhere afterwards, you know. You like, so you end up sitting in a, you, know, you record it at seven o'clock in the evening or something, and then you go and you go out and you sit in a bar. And, oh, it's me on the telly up there live. Oh, it's you. Yeah, like, oh. I record it. Oh, okay. <laughs> In fact, I think the first time we did the Letterman show, they were still, you still had to use bits of the house band. Ah, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they kind of, they stopped doing that, thankfully. <laughs> so I think we did have Paul Schaefer playing keyboards and maybe, I forgot the drummer's name, the guy who used to play in the overscale and the extractions. Um, yeah. I think maybe they played the first time that we did it. That was very weird. That was very, very weird. Um, thankfully, I don't do that anymore. If I were doing the Jimmy Kimmel show when we go over, um, which is a big West Coast. Ah, yeah. One. So that should be good fun. And do you do more songs than, than we would see, or is it always just what you've done? No, it's, just, it's exactly like the programs are the programs are made like they like they showed them, like they showed them. Um, okay, yeah. But they even do the commercial breaks when they do the, the um, when they when they record them when they record the whole thing. So you know, you don't do anything else. No? Ah, right, right. So you're getting the countdown back on air. And... Ah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's a guy standing there, you know, three, two, one, you know, like... <laughs> Excellent, yeah. Put headphones on, eh? <laughs> And sound-wise, do you know, I've, I've said this before uh, to other people, that 
it doesn't always translate well. Bands to to TV. Do you have you been okay with that? Have you watched things like Jules? I mean, I think Jules always sounds great, but there's a couple of programs you would you would think that just doesn't sound good at all. But you know that if you were there at the gig, it would sound great. I think it's a lot better than it used to be. A lot of sound engineers used to really struggle trying to get a pretty decent sound in the TV. Yeah. And I remember someone at the tube used to sound a bit rough. We never did that program. And then we did the we did the one from uh, the one that Chris Evans used to do from Hammersmith. Yeah, um, uh, we did that a couple of times. Uh, one time it was all right, and one time it was pretty rough. Yeah. I mean, you can uh, like I say, it's got a lot better. I think the engineers have got a lot better, and they're not so fussy about it being somebody with a, the right union card who's doing the TV sound. But yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I look forward to the Jimmy Kimmel one then when it's when it's on. Uh, the sound's always good, now, and I've watched a couple of things. Yeah. I mean, all these men they know what they're doing in these programs when they know how to get it. The vibe. In terms of the lineup for Delamitri, um, oh. I was going to say it's almost gone full circle, hasn't it? Because there was a time you played with Kim McDermott Orchestra, and now Jim McDermott's playing in Delamitri, so it's kind of a bit of a loop there, isn't it? Yeah, I mean. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, well, the answer to that is yes. I mean, Jim really helped us out. So Ash who played on the record has been struggling to to work on the road um, because there's a couple of things that have kind of made it difficult for him. So, I mean, Jim is great. Jim just kind of stepped in. Uh, actually, it was Ash that recommended him. Yep. Yeah. It's a great challenge, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's always, I mean, we always imagined it would just be the, the five of us from that played on waking hours that would keep on going but it's never worked out like that I've just a few questions about um, your influences as a guitar player so like what? well firstly I was going to ask what, what made you get into the guitar what made you decide I want, I want to get I want to play in the first place so I mean I was quite young well I was quite young when I started so I got my first guitar when I was 10 and that was sort of bought for me. I wasn't sort of mad about having a guitar. I think I was kind of, at say that point, I wanted to be given a cassette recorder. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I remember being given a guitar instead. Um, and that was a decision that my parents took. I think my dad took. But quite quickly, I sort of got seriously into playing. Um, and at that point, it's just learning basic chords I did spend quite a lot of time practicing at that point I got a couple of people, couple of people to show me chords and it was a kind of rubbish well, it wasn't rubbish but a kind of big old sort of brute, uh, an echo range of sticks nice. <laughs> the guitar um, it was really hard to play and then I, had a, I mean I must have had a bit of an attitude for it I didn't really think about it at the time um, and I got a kind of draft and I went to say I just got like a drafted into a kind of Glenn Miller type swing band as the guitar player. And right. uh, I remember kind of sitting in the first day, I was only really, so there'd be 11 or 12 at this point, and all the chords, so I knew what the chords what chords are, I knew C, G, D, E, A, F, all the chords that you learn in the beginning. And I could play F, I could play F in a bar, <laughs> um, despite the fact of being an echo range of six. But then they gave me all these uh, chord seats, but because it was, um, because it's a, that kind of band. Everything was in flat keys because all those instruments transpose. 
So yeah. everyone was either in A flat or D flat, and I was going, well, what, what are these chords? What does that mean? And I was like, oh, you just need to sort of play the F, you have to play it up a bit. And I was like, what the hell? Um, so, I mean, I, I became the kind of guitar player, and that was kind of how I cut my teeth. And I, said, I did that for five years. And then it was kind of school shows and stuff. Um, I mean, sitting there, sort of chunking out four to the bar in flat keys is, is quite an astonishing sort of routine to, to, to get you going. So, I mean, I kind of, I think it was a lot I was down to that. And then I did really start seeing series at that point. I was kind of starting to be in little bands and doing all this stuff. But I, you know, so two or three nights a week, I was sitting in rehearsals after school playing, I whatever those playing Miller tunes are called. I can't remember the titles of them now. And then sort of the soundtrack to Oliver and South Pacific and the school musicals. And it's not easy, that stuff. Yeah. Um, was that reading it as well, or was it just like? I just reading chords. I mean, I wasn't. I, I was generally just sort of playing the chords, but yeah, just reading it off chord sheets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that was. But those, I mean, that's not influence at all. Um, so I mean, the guitar players that I was getting fascinated with at that point were in that in that world at all. Um, I mean, quite early on, I became very really fascinated with Paul Kossoff's guitar playing. All right. Yep. Yep. And I know they're not a particularly hip band these days, free. In fact, I listened to Highway the other day, just the vinyl kind of came onto my fingertips and I put it on. I thought it sounded brilliant. I'm thinking I should go back and have a look at Paul Kossoff. Yeah, probably. So he was kind of my original sort of guitar hero. And then I kind of went through a bit of a Hendrix phase. Mm. I got hold of some quite good, there were some really good transcriptions of the, some of the Hendrix stuff came out at that point. Um, it's quite an accurate tab. Right. Um, and I remember sitting down with those and start, I mean, I'm, I'm not claiming that I could ever play like Hendrix, but sort of seeing how that worked, I was like, all right, okay, you know, I can see what's this guy doing, all that kind of double stringing stuff and some of those sort of inversions that he uses, he, he never plays you know, a straightforward major chord with an E in the bass, or hardly ever. Um, so that, I remember that that was a big kind of thing. Um, and then sort of later, <coughs> starting to listen to Tom Verlaine and, and Neil Young. Um, actually, I think it's by being very different occupying very different kind of places in people's perceptions that are really similar players. That's probably something that's that's where they came from. And see were you were your slide guitar playing? I mean what was there anyone in particular drew you to No, I just kind of picked that up. Yeah. Um yeah. partly because and that was partly from pedal from getting hold of a pedal steel. There was a kind of do you remember CC Music? It was a music shop in the West End. It's still there, actually, in a different place. And they took a pedal steel, a kind of student model, not a very good pedal steel, but playable. They took a pedal steel in part exchange for something, I suppose, whatever. No, they did. Um, that's not the interesting part of the story. 
And uh, I used to hang around in the shop a fair bit, and I was kind of like, I got quite fascinated by this, but they didn't even know how to tune it, so I kind of went away. That is pre-internet, so it wasn't that straightforward, that's the figure now, how to tune a pedal steel, because you had to find a pedal steel player, or you had to write somebody, or you had to go and, oh, how did, you find, did I find that, how to tune it? I think I did, I got tracked down some Mel Bay book. Uh, yeah. I had to figure out how to tune it, and then I had to figure out how to set the pedals, because it's not, you can set them up in loads of different ways. It wasn't quite set up right. And eventually it was like, just take it out of the shop, just take it out of the shop, you know, because they didn't know where to sell it. I think in the end they gave them 90 quid for it. And that kind of, the slide plane kind of came from that. I mean, it took me a, a while to, I mean, I'm not a great pedal steel player, but I kind of, I can sort of make it work. So it came, it came from that, I think. Just that kind of opened up a world of thinking about how you could about just about using the slides. Yeah, I always think, you know, I, I always find slide pretty hard to, to get a grip of myself. So I don't know if you're, maybe your pedal steel just got you more into the, the way of it, but I don't know. I was interesting that you don't use alternative tuning for your slide plane either. That's, that's good to know. That's making things probably harder for slide, isn't it, in a way? Because you could just open it. Well, it isn't, it isn't, because you know where you're, you know no. the notes are, so you don't, yeah, well, I mean... Good. You can think of it in a different way. If you've got it tuned to a chord, then you got it, you end up, I think you can end up kind of stuck in that yeah. kind of there's a kind of cliched way of, sort of playing steel that you can end up with if you tune it to a D chord or you tune it to whatever, because you just kind of slide between the chords yeah. with a couple of suspensions here and there. Where if you're using if the regular tuning, you have to think what well, you think of a lot more than sort of dyads rather than triads, you know, which kind of made sense to me. You know, in that kind of Hendrix way, a lot of things double strung. And so I kind of, it's just a different way of thinking about how you're, you know, how the, how you're going to structure melodies, I think. You're not, you're not sort of, you're not starting with the chord and then thinking about what suspensions you're going to add to it. You can actually, you can actually just kind of think about the same sort of melodic structures you might think about if you were using a slide. It's just, just about when you're, when you're writing parts. I know you've, you've, in this album and, and plenty of others, you've you've, you've co-wrote a lot of the songs. So, see when you're, how does that work? You just come up with a guitar part and then decide, you know, that that could be something, and fire the idea across to the rest of the band. Or do you have lyrical ideas that go with it, or do you just is it just the music part? Just is very precious about his lyrics. I've never really gone there. Um, I've never really, and I've always found writing song lyrics kind of awkward. I'm never really sure how you reconcile an effective song lyric with, with poetry and that mm. kind of leads me slightly see because um, I think there is a skill in writing song lyrics which is very different from writing poetry not that I'm very, not that I'm very good at writing poetry either but, um, but I, you know I mean obviously I've you know, been a musician and I've written songs for 25 years I have thought about writing lyrics but I've never liked the lyrics I've written <laughs> Um, and I never really understood whether I was writing poetry or whether I was writing song lyrics. So, I mean, Justin's very precious and, you know, a bit of a genius, I don't like that one, but he's, you know, he's enormously devoted and enormously skilled at writing lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I haven't really ever gone down the lyrics thing with Dale Mutri. But, I mean, actually what tends to happen is more that I'll kind of, maybe kind of a song without lyrics or certainly a kind of song structure that I've got in my head 
and some things I'll get chopped around and changed around and the verse ends up being the chorus and mm. the chorus ends up being that and we sort of decide to write a different middle eight or get rid of the middle eight or it's kind of I mean It's Feelings was pretty much written and demoed and then Justin just added lyrics to it uh, you know Here Now was kind of similar other things are a bit more a bit more fluid but so there's kind of two modes of writing. I mean, just, I mean and Justin writes, the songs that Justin writes, there's only a leather right at the piano, right at the, on the guitar. And they usually come pretty fully formed in the rehearsal. Well, sometimes we'll probably write them very differently. Has anything ever came out of just jamming, just setting up at the start of a rehearsal and then you, you just jumped on something and everyone's just got it in a song? Well, I mean, that was kind of how we, we the first album, the sort of 1980. Two album, I don't know, 1984 album. This is the one in Chrysalis, it's called Dale of Street. And that was sort of written like that. We just kind of jammed and recorded, and Justin would then kind of splice it up on a Revox and put lyrics over it. And then we would sort of we would come back in the rehearsal room and we'd sort of figure out how to play it as a song. I mean, not so much now. It can be quite a torturous process to try to write that way, I think, because people are. People <laughs> get a bit precious and it, I mean, get, it's quite easy to lose the plot. We have done stuff, we think. I mean, being somebody else was kind of that. But we tend not to bother that now. Sure, sure. Is, is Soundcheck ever a time to do that? Are you quite strict? Is it you're just going to run through these songs? Or does, do, do some bands manage to write songs out of soundchecks even? Does that ever come up? Uh, no, I've never really done that particularly. Uh, I'd be kind of jealous of somebody who could do that. I don't. <laughs> I mean, we sort of work on stuff at Soundchase, but I don't know. It's not in that right environment for us, certainly. Sure. Uh, I don't know. So, what, I mean, what are these bands that write songs at Soundchase? I mean, I can see maybe. I don't know. I mean, who are you thinking of? I'm quite interested. Do you know what? lightly to me. <laughs> no, I, 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 I couldn't recall off the top of my head. I'm sure of the bands like. Um... I'm sure a lot of like even metal bands like Iron Maiden have done it in the past. When you mentioned Stereophonics, I'm pretty sure they'd said before it was like I, when I say born out of a soundcheck, it was probably Kelly Jones had the idea and he was he was jamming it at soundcheck and the rest joined in. So oh. it probably was a a bit of a song there already to begin with, maybe I suppose. But yeah, I mean if you're constantly on tour, then I suppose that is a time to throw ideas around. Do you have a favourite Delamitri song to listen to, but a different to favourite song to play, if that makes any sense? I mean, it's, it's, it's not... I'm not sure how you, would, how would you answer that question. How would I answer that question? I mean, I always really love playing here and now. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, but I'm not sure why, particularly over other songs. It always really seems to connect with the audience. That's more just from a... Um, from that perspective, in terms of listening, I don't really listen to the songs. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't listen to a song. I wouldn't listen to one of our songs to try and assess it as a song. I'd be more thinking about them as part of an album. That was always kind of what we'd be thinking about. So I mean, I have listened to things recently for various reasons, but I, I don't think I would think about them as songs particularly. I'd be thinking more about how albums worked or how sides of albums worked I think alright right. Yeah. in fact you know I was listening to Twisted the other day and I was quite struck by 
it felt that it functioned very, very differently than I thought it did, or, or, it, 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 or how it actually functioned for me at the time when we sequenced it. Um, I wondered if it was actually the record that we thought it was when we made it. But I wasn't really, I wasn't thinking about the songs specifically. I wasn't thinking about specific songs, to be sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, but was... on stage, it's a wee bit different because you do, you know, it's, 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 each song kind of works as an individual performance to some extent, mm. much more so than you do on a record. Is there any parts of the gig equally, you know, on one side that you think, great, I really love this, I can totally rip, let rip on it, but equally is there a part, part of the set you think, oh God, I always mess this one up or I always struggle to remember this middle eight part or something like that? Um, yeah, I mean, is there any sort of particular... <laughs> No, just different. What I think she sees is that it's quite easy to play, but it's got a capo and it's a whole finger picky thing, and I was just that. Uh, I was always glad when that was done. It's got a simple thing, but because it's so simple, any kind of you know kind of be fluff or anything, just just to really just just to sort of ruin my vibe, man. Um, I mean, it probably didn't matter to the audience, but um, we did that in the 2015 tour. I do remember always been quite. Breathing a sigh of relief when we'd done that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was partly through the fact that I don't hardly ever play like Jesus has a cap was on it and it's got a cap on. Yeah, yeah. A stupid place like the fourth fret or something. And I was just like, oh, it's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just, I was playing a part of the Justin and Britain. When you mentioned here and now as well, you know, I think that's. Must be. I can never get the timing right when when you start the song. I'm like trying to get the, the timing. It's not all the drums come in. that go right there. We are, but I don't know how you. It seems to be a really offbeat, weird sort of. It probably isn't, but it always just sounds that way to me. This is four bars. Yeah, it just seems to. I don't know. It just seems to catch me out every time. But well, there's a bit of a pickups. The pickups was the pickups more. Than it, so it's got quite a long anecdote. It's quite a big pickup. Yeah, I think it's like between the keyboards and yourself. I'm like, oh, the key, yeah, okay, the keyboards come in a funny place. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Right? Yeah, um, it never seems to throw you anyway. But I'm always like, right, what, where am I going? All right, there's the drums. I know where it's going now. But <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll listen to that as well. Yeah, um, I think it's just a straight. As far as the guitar's concerned, I think it's just a straightforward bar intro. But yeah, things come in different places. Eh? Well, well, don't don't fixate on it because now I've said that you're probably be like, I can't play nah, it. Nah, that one's totally muscle memory now. No, no. Um, although yeah, I mean, sometimes that goes. Sometimes you just find yourself standing on the stage and go, "Oh shit!" It's a funny one that you know because you, you can you can corpse on almost anything if you're playing every night. Yeah, you can just sort of you can just sort of go sometimes. Yeah, I guess a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because your muscle memory is great, but as you say, if you if you drift away too much, and you just yeah, you can you can suddenly be like, oh, hang on, where am I? We played don't know because we had to break that last tour up because there was oh just because it had been postponed and rescheduled so many times. It was having three chunks, and of course the last chunk than that. There's a bit of a gap between the first two of the shows and the second of the shows, like ten days or something. Maybe it was as long as two weeks. Yeah, we're like, do we need to get a rehearsal room? It's like, we probably don't, we probably don't. Just make sure, oh, everybody's got, you know, just, you know, do a bit of self-rehearsal between the shows and that'll be fine. And, uh, and, and actually, we played Hamilton Town Hall. Um, we started um, Close Your Eyes and Think of England. I just played acoustic guitar on it. And I, I couldn't remember what key it was in. <laughs> I was just I was like, oh, shit. They're like, they're like, cause it's, <laughs> Andy started playing the keyboards and I was like, bloody hell. <laughs> oh, this is 
And I was, I was like, Andy, what keys it? And he was like, what do you mean, what keys? What keys it? And uh, by the end, it, it just wouldn't. It just, I just wouldn't. I just couldn't play. It. I just kind of had to shut up pretty much through the whole song. <laughs> um, and we went in the dressing room afterwards, and I was like, again, hey, an acoustic guitar. Maybe you know this. And I played through the whole song without straight off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> humbuckers or single coils? The only guitars have got humbuckers, although the Les Pauls have got many humbuckers than the Luxes. It's a bit less metal, but a bit less rock, maybe yeah. tighter sounding. Excellent. A tremolo or a fixed bridge? Uh, you mean by battle? Yeah, yeah. Tremolo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've got both. So I've got two guitars with big speed and two that don't, essentially, on stage. But if you if you could only pick one, yeah, uh, well, I'd have, I'd have one in the mix. It's brilliant. A maple or a rosewood neck? Uh, only guitars have got rosewood necks. Valve or transistor? Oh, I haven't played a transistor in for thirty five years. <laughs> digital or analog? Uh, well, analog, but you, you have to record digital these days. Cash or prizes? Um, oh, let's just say cash. <laughs> Musicians or beer? Um, <laughs> well, at this stage in my life, probably musicians, but there was a time when I would have gone to beer first. <laughs> there's, there's one more totally goofy one left. Um, it's just something I've always said to mates and stuff. You know, if somebody sends me a YouTube clip that's someone playing guitar at like 3,000 mile an hour, always say, aye, very good, but can they put a fruit pastel in their mouth without chewing it? It's just an old TV advert. I don't know if you remember. Uh, it's like a basketball player spinning the ball and the wee kid says to him, aye, but can you put a fruit pastel in your mouth? So I'm asking everyone that just randomly to see what, what they say. So again, you can just give me a one-word answer if you want or you can wax lyrical about it. So, um, I, Well, I think I could certainly put a fruit pastel in my mouth without chewing it. Yeah, like Neil Young, I've never really... I've never been able to play that fast. <laughs> but I imagine Neil Young could probably put a foot past all these without sucking it. <laughs> but I suppose that's the equivalent of just playing the same note for quite a long time. And I always respect guitar players who can do that. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, well listen, uh, thanks so much for doing this again. I uh, really appreciate it. Best of luck with the tour, and I'm sure it'll go great. Well, maybe I'll see you doing a ballet tour. I don't know if you're right. You'll be on next week. So. Thanks a lot, Ian. Right, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks Cheers. Cheers, bye. Thanks for listening to episode four with Ian Harvey from Delamitri. Don't forget to go to your favourite podcast channel and subscribe to 10 Strummer's Tales. And if you like what you've heard so far, why not leave a review whilst you're there? See you in the next one.